Today on episode 54 of BRC and Friends, Laura, Jorge, and I are joined by Dr. Robin Magalit Rodriguez, a scholar activist and people's professor at the University of California, Davis, where she is the chair of the Asian American Studies Department and founder of the Carlos Bulasan Center. We talked about the state of Asian American and ethnic studies, we pondered the world that Gen Zs are navigating, and we learned about Dr. Robin's upcoming farm adventure. It was a pleasure getting to know Robin as we shared some tender moments about calling, family, and activism. By the end of the episode, you too will be as taken with her story and humanity as we were. Thanks for being here. Grab a beverage, pull up a chair, and enjoy listening to our conversation with Dr. Robin Magalit Rodriguez. My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, my co-hosts and I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for us to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. All right, welcome all. Glad I'm glad you've joined us for BRC and Friends again. Uh, we're going to first uh, introduce ourselves. If, you, if this is your first time listening to us, we'll give our preferred pronouns and where we are in ministry context. And then Dr. Robin's going to introduce herself, and then we'll just kind of dive into it as we do here. So I'll go first. My name is Bruce Reyes Chow. I am currently in San Jose, California. I use he, him pronouns. Um, and um, I don't really have a job job. That's why I get to do podcasting and all kinds of other stuff, uh, trying to figure out what is next, if those of you have been following. So I'll invite Laura. Hi, everyone. Laura Mariko Heifetz. I use pronouns she, her, and hers. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I work in theological education. Great. Thank you. Jorge. Jorge Bautista, uh, social minister at the Congregational Church of San Mateo, uh, pronounce he, him, his. And I feel like I have two homes because half the time I live in Merced, California, and the other half in San Mateo, California on the peninsula. And for those of you not from California, those are very far apart. <laughs> A long way. So two hours apart. Oh, my gosh. That seems so far. And weather. In weather, exactly. I'm really excited today. Uh, a friend of mine said, uh, if you do not have Robin on your show, it is not legit. And made an introduction uh, between uh, myself and Dr. Robin. So we're going to invite you, uh, Dr. Robin Magalit Rodriguez, to introduce yourself. How, let us know what, you want, what people you want us to call you and uh, pronouns. And then give us a little sense of uh, who you are, what's important for us to know about you. This is your time to introduce yourself. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I always say, I insist on doctor of your white folks. Just kidding. <laughs> but for folks in the community. Hey, legit, legit. Was recognized. Um, I did work really hard for that degree, but uh, generally it's okay to refer to me as Robin. Thank you for that. I do go by she, her, hers pronouns or xia which basically would translate into they if you were to use a Filipino. So how would I introduce myself right now? I'm sort of in transition, but I'm best known as a scholar, a author, researcher, professor, activist. So currently I am the co-chair of Asian American Studies at UC Davis. I am also the founding faculty director of the Carlos Bolosan Center for Filipino or Filipinx Studies. But I am in I am in transition. I am going to be retiring early from academia, effective July 1st, 2023. 
And I am actually coming to you from Miwok Pomo country in Lake County, where we have a farm and a and we're establishing a retreat and learning center. I have decided I want uh, the farm to be my new classroom. And uh, we could talk a little bit more about that, but I, I've been you know telling folks that, yeah, I, I was sort of you know a professor for a very long time. Uh, affiliated with several different universities, and really, all I've always ever wanted to be was a people's professor. So I'm, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do it from here where I am. So uh, that's a lengthy introduction, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like there needs to. <laughs> I, I think we're going to do a live uh, BRC and friends from the farm. We're just going to oh, yeah. invite ourselves over and uh, set up. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. You know, it's funny because part of I want (laughs) to podcast more actually. And we have a little we have a little cabin that I am, you know, that we I I hope can be our little studio. So please, it would be so fun. That would be awesome. That's that's great. So now where did you grow up? What's what's hometown? We're there. I'm bringing my cousins and my aunts. I'm sorry, I'm saying we're I'm there, I'm bringing my cousins, my aunts. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Of well, course, right, and right? we got plenty of space out here. We have about eight acres. It, it might be a different ad. It might be a different address than we get, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where did I grow up? Awesome. I grew up in Union City, California. Um, I'm very proud Union City, California. Um, and for folks who are uh, identify as Filipino, Filipina, or Filipinx American, I think it has a kind of meaning. It's sort of like saying. Like you, I think Bruce saying that you grew up in Stockton, uh, you know, Union City has had a very long history of Filipino settlement. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, my block, almost everybody was Filipino, um, you know, was very, very common to hear Tagalog or any number of Filipino languages on the street when you pass folks by. So that was a very huge part of, you know, my upbringing was just being very fiercely and apologetically Filipino. I also just grew up with the majority people of color. So that also, I think, has been really vital to my formation as a person and how I think about myself and in relation to to folks of color. Uh, you know, we were a majority minority uh, community. I didn't even know what majority and minority meant because in the context of the town I grew up in, none of those uh, designations, the way they were being used really made sense at all. Awesome. That's great. Thank you. Well, I, I was going to ask you a lot of questions about Asian American studies in the Carlos Bulosan Center, but now I kind of want to talk about the farm. But before we get there, um, so I'm an Asian American studies major, at San Francisco State. Before it was actually a major, I had to do, I did one of these wild triple major things uh, at San Francisco State. My two kids are ethnic studies, um, politics majors in college right now. And um can you just like, what's the state of Asian American studies these days? If you had to just kind of describe that for folks, what's, what's going on? Are there things that are important to know about what's going on right now? Yeah. Oh, great question. And, and in some ways it's part of how I answer is probably, uh, is the introduction for why I'm on a farm, um, and, and choosing, uh, to, uh, to, to resign <laughs> early or not resign, but kind of to retire early, you know, Asian American studies has been around, at least at my institution, for just over 50 years. The field as a whole uh, has been around for over 50 years, but we are embattled. It is incredibly challenging uh, for us to um, 
continue on with the with the work that we're doing. Uh, as you know, as somebody coming out of a program where it was ground zero for the ethnic studies struggle in 1968, where students uh, organized themselves with faculty, staffers, the community, shut down the university, demanded ethnic studies, got um, many of their demands met with the creation of the College of Ethnic Studies and you know, inspired so many people around the country, including young people in Davis, right? Um, we have these wonderful activist histories, but part of our survival over the past 50 years has uh, required, and I actually I'm, I question actually whether this is a requirement or whether different things um, conspired to make it such that we had to choose the choice, make the choices we made. But, you know, the field of Asian American studies ended up uh, having to really assimilate and, and um, Asian American studies uh, faculty really had to get in line with the university's requirements for hiring, for tenure, uh, for, you know, how courses are taught. And uh, increasingly over the years, it has become nearly un probably completely unrecognizable to many of the people who fought for Asian American studies in the early years, people who took Asian American studies courses. It is very much an academic discipline now. Uh, many of the people who are Asian American studies uh, professors are not necessarily people uh, who've come out of social justice movements in the way they used to be in the early years. Um, these are people who are professionally trained academics, uh, who do you know research on topics that um, concern Asian Americans, but in many ways, uh, these are not people who you know are necessarily again you know kind of connected closely with with uh, social justice movements or necessarily see the work that they do as advancing uh, social justice movements, even though they may be producing really great work certainly in terms of uh, providing deeper understandings of Asian American identities, cultures, uh, issues, but largely uh, doing that work within the context and confines of academia. So, you know, on one hand, maybe that's what we needed to do uh, to survive. I'm not always entirely certain that that was a necessary choice, but it is what it has become. And so, you know, I'm here. Uh, I, I served as chair previously for my department, serve now as co-chair. It has been incredibly challenging to get investment for Asian American studies. We've lost multiple faculty members to separations, to retirements. We have not yet recovered our numbers. I have to basically hustle to get funding for any of our programming, uh, you know, organizing alumni, uh, you know, the creation of the Carlos Bulosan uh, Center for Philippinic Studies was a grassroots effort. I basically took the cues of, of my parents and, uh, you know, elders in the Filipino community who always love to organize a good dinner dance to raise money <laughs> for any number of causes. That's what I did. That's what we started. And then eventually we had a uh, ally in the state legislature, a uh, former assembly member, now Attorney General Rob Bonta, who helped us to, to, to secure some investment from the state of California, but I have yet to see any real investment on the part of the UC system and certainly nothing from my campus. And, you know, I'm just tired of fighting so hard for 
um, something I really believe in. You know, I mean, for me, Asian American studies, I never entered the field as somebody as just an academic. I, I, I see myself as a scholar activist. It was always about producing knowledge for uh, our community and uh, in ways that uplift us, that affirm us, that address the various ways in which we're marginalized and exploited. That, that is what Asian American studies has always meant for me. And this is not to uh, diminish the important work of academic Asian American studies. That stuff needs to happen too. And I've done that work as well. It's just, that's not at the heart, that's not kind of what motivates me. And so, you know, after fighting this fight for so long, it's, I've just decided, you know, I don't have the stamina anymore. I have lots of mentees and hopefully they will take on the mantle of this work. But I want to do new things now and try to carve out and build out new sorts of institutions where we can uh, do this sort of work without being uh, struggling within the confines of institutions that were never, never made for us. Uh-oh. We lost her. Uh-oh. Uh, Are you back? I'm oh, here. It. Yeah. Uh, no, we got you. You're back. We we got we we got most of it. So that was awesome. Oh, thank you for sh- thank you for that honesty. I mean, I I've been hearing hearing a lot of that as well. But uh, Laura or Har- or hey, you have any questions at this point? Ooh, this is good podcast oh, radio. I right guess. Here. Yeah, this is like well, one of my questions is um, because I've been hanging out sometimes with like the Asian American undergraduates and graduates who are really organizing. Um, for Asian American studies to be a thing in other regions, other schools, just wondering how you're also experiencing like the student body and the student energy uh, now, as opposed to maybe when you started oh, or when you were yeah, yourself no, that's studying. That's a great question. You know, I am oh, really trying to wrap my head around Gen Z in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, I think that, uh, and then to add to that, to what extent the pandemic has also perhaps exacerbated some issues that I noticed already. You know, I do think that on one hand, uh, many of the young people I'm encountering in the classroom and, you know, the Blosan Center has a, just a huge number of interns from all around the world, really, who aren't even UC Davis students. So um, I get to interact with young people all the time and uh, what I found is uh, so many of these young people are incredibly sharp, really, really critical thinkers, and yet really reticent to uh, share some of that critique without first taking some time to sort of craft um, a carefully constructed sort of stance, if that makes sense. You know, I think it has to do maybe with uh, cancel culture, uh, maybe with the permanency with which, you know, kind of a social media post can, you know, uh, per, you know, there's a way that there's cancel culture and stuff you put on on social media. If that's your primary mode of engaging in issues of the day, there's a permanency to that. So I find that they're very careful, really hesitant, not uh, apt to express an opinion, you know, kind of unformed, like, I think this kind of format would probably be really hard. You know, want to make sure they probably want to make sure to, it, that things are going to be edited. And, you know, again, this is, this is, this is a set of, this is a generation where you can frame and reframe photos and edit and re-edit things you say. And again, if social media is your primary modality of engaging political issues, 
think it really shapes how you then move in the world. And so, I don't know, sometimes I feel like uh, there's, they want, there's, yeah, just a weird thing that I, I, I participate in a lot of community, you know, activist spaces. And I remember at the height of the pandemic, there was a lot of, we were doing some work in the community around really grappling with anti, not just anti-Asian hate, but also anti-Blackness in the Asian American community. So we had um, a little breakout room with small discussions and there was a young person there. And, you know, as an organizer and activist, I always talk about myself in relation to the organizations I represent, you know, and when I'm part of, that I'm a member of. And I remember it was really, really weird to have this young woman introduce themselves and talk about the organizations they follow on social media or people they follow on social media, as opposed to them talking about themselves as being a part of a group or an organization. That was really interesting to me. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm struggling to understand them, how they move in the world, how do they engage in action. I do think there's a lot of promise there. They're sharp, really sharp. They can think in these incredibly nuanced ways. I think, you know, uh, the LGBTQ plus community, uh, trans and non-binary folks are pushing us really hard in the ways we think about things in the world. These are young people who can hold so much complexity and I love it and I feel so challenged by it. And yet I feel like, mm, you know, there's, there's a fearfulness, just a, a lack of boldness and create, you know, kind of courageousness in ways that I, I find a little worrying, you know, and, and of course, you know, lots of folks took to the streets during, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, uh, murder and the summer of 2020, you know, and just have been responding. And yet, you know, still, I feel like uh, the sustained involvement, uh, you know, or just uh, a boldness that, yeah, maybe a boldness that that kind of manifests and sort of sustained commitment to work. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I'm struggling to see to see it. Right. I don't. I, have a, I think they they have a hard time too. I don't know if that that that's sort of a long and roundabout answer. But I'm really trying to make sense of them. They really confound me, and I'm so. But they pique my curiosity too because there's. I feel like there's a lot of they, they do. There's a lot too that they offer. You know. I feel like they're. They are offering some really important possibilities. Like just, yeah, I'm, I'm raised. I got two of two of them in my right. life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, there's another story that's a little sad for me. I, is, I, yeah. the, my my two Gen Zers. Go ahead, go ahead, Bruce. No, no, no I want to hear it. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. You're, tell, 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 show, share about your Gen Zers. No, I was just saying that I have yeah two Gen two 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 Gen Zers in my life. You know, a 21 and 19 year old, and who have been you know, raised to be activists in many ways. And so trying to help them figure out. And one of the things that's very interesting to me is it, it's always really saddening to me because I hear them and I feel like they have no hope for the future. Like, and I, I know that they do somewhere in it, but the way that there's this, there's this very, like almost not quite a why bother, but we're going to do this work, but it's not going to matter. I mean, there, and I know, and I, part of me is like, no, it's going to be like, there's hope. Da, da, da. And so I, I try not to be like, no, you don't feel the things you're feeling. Um, but I, I do know that that kind of is this, like how are, like when they're thinking about their future and their activism and all the things they're doing, I know that it's grounded in some hope that it's making a difference. 
but how they speak into the world is very much like, well, the world's not going to be here anyway. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay. 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 <laughs> so I know that, uh, you know, my, my, my zeers in that regard, that's one of the things that I'm always like, okay. I, I know there's hope in there somewhere uh, for sure. Uh, they've actually checked out of a lot of social media, which is very interesting. They've uh, not, aren't, aren't really engaged in a lot of it, but um, go ahead. We were going to share a story. Oh as, yeah. As well. well, you know, I mean, part of, you know, my, my, sort of uh, where I am now, which is also as I'm a bereaved mom, you know, I actually lost my older Gen Z son uh, who died while working alongside indigenous communities actually in the Philippines in 2020. So, I mean, that's certainly part of the reason that I've been prompted to take a pause to really think about what it is that I care about and what I want to do with the world and in the world that is. But you know, he was an interesting Gen Zer. Um, I mean, definitely the child of activists and very, I, I think, analog, I guess, in the way that he approached things. You know, really somebody who, uh, <laughs> cherry, you know, cherished kind of being present with people, was not very active in social media, actually, and really hated sort of social media as a mode of like, you know, connecting with people. Um, and so I think there's also that you're right. I think that you've got um, a, a, a bunch of them who are also uh, kind of really resisting um, and disengaging from social media and are, you know, really trying to return to or or devise other ways of being kind of with uh, each other. And, and, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot that's still yet to be revealed about this generation. You know, I think things that might have been true up until 2019 are not so true anymore uh, since the pandemic. And lots of things are shifting. I, I think you're right. I think that there's sometimes I feel like I detect a malaise. And then at the same time, I also feel like I detect lots of hopefulness. So I feel like it's they're a, they're a difficult sort of generation to pinpoint. But I do have to say, you know, I feel like my trans uh, and non-binary uh, students um, have really pushed me and I appreciate all the ways that they've helped to to help me uh, and kind of think beyond the binaries. Definitely feel like I appreciate how they've set the boundaries around their own mental health and well-being and have really demanded of us to do the same. So I appreciate that because I was kind of a hardcore sort of person and didn't know how to do that. And and they do, they take things slow, at least many that I've met. So I, I appreciate actually even speaking for a group of folks who are faith-based, I think there's also uh, folks exploring their spirituality in ways that I think was probably less true for maybe my generation, uh, that I think many of us became, you know, kind of very secular. And um, I am finding it very interesting how they're turning to the spiritual and what that looks like for them is varied. I think some of it is trying to uncover, you know, pre-colonial sort of ancestral um, forms of spirituality, whatever that means to finding new ways to connect to, you know, Christianity. Uh, But that's super interesting as well. And I'm I'm really intrigued at... by that, and I, I'm learning a lot from them as well in the ways that they bring their spirituality into the world in ways that I don't feel like I did. No, I think I think you're right. We're seeing that a lot in in spaces. Uh, Jorge, any questions at this point? We want to make sure you, you gave you a chance to jump in. You know, uh, 
Not a question, but more just this conversation is really making me think a lot about my own experience or in, in life in particular to ethnic studies. And and especially even uh, right now, as you brought up spirituality and, and some of the folks kind of trying to tap into, uh, you know, the past, right, and that, into the ancestors. Um, and uh, it's, it's making me reminisce or be nostalgic to, as a Chicano, <clears throat> I... Uh, when I was 20 years old, I converted to Christianity. I also, at the same time, did not identify as a Chicano. And uh, and it was at the community college level when I decided to go back to school because I dropped out of school in eighth grade. So from eighth grade to I was 20 years old, this, this is a whole other story. I was pretty much in and out of jail, and but found myself in a position where I was ready to change and transform my life. So. Two, two things helped me really in that in that transformation was one, uh, converting to Christianity and two, going back to school. But in particular, the Chicano ethnic study program that they had at San Jose City College, was which was really strong. <clears throat> and so I'm here sitting uh, thinking about how I am convinced that if it wasn't for my Chicano classes that really helped me understand my history and those that came before me and their activism, I wouldn't be who I am today as an activist. Meaning that uh, what happened is the first church I went to was a white church. It was both white pastors. And 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 while they did a lot for me and helped me out a lot in life and was, were a big part of my transformation, uh, after five years of being part of this church, I began to have this analytical uh, look about some of the hatred that was coming out of the pulpit, in particular towards uh, Muslims and the LGBTQ community, and also within my own people as migrants. And so I began to pick and question the theology. And and uh, I realized also, why is it that every time I would step into the church, I would have to check my Chicanismo. I wouldn't bring my Chicanismo into the church, right? But the Chicanismo actually got me to a place where I started pushing back against Western theology, right? It, it was realizing uh, the power that, you know, we really have and then connecting into so social justice, that word in particular, it was a bad word for the evangelical church that I was a part of. <laughs> like you just, you couldn't bring that word up. If you brought social justice up, it was connected to communism, socialism, and so on and so on. So I guess, I'm just wondering, have you found, you know, in your own experience in ethnic studies, like that it has become also a form of transformation, but also to to decolonize and also reclaim, you know, because I've seen it in a lot of my own communities where unfortunately they have bought into this kind of right wing evangelical uh, <clears throat> spirit of things that I am against, right? And I'm fighting division in my own communities because of religion. And, um, but I've also noticed that many of those people have not, I'm not taking, and I'm talking about like friends too and family members that um, unfortunately didn't get the experience I had into being part of an ethnic studies or Chicano studies program that has really given me a lot of pride and, uh, and who I am, and because a lot of the studies were focused on all the activism 
yeah, we took it back to the Aztecs, but it was really quickly pushed into, you know, the school blowouts, the Bracero programs, the United Farm Worker movements and and uh, and all of that. So just curious how have, have you seen that played out in, uh, in, in within your own community, kind of in the Filipino community being used as a way to transform and uh, not, you know, not fall into whatever else you want to call it. But yeah. Yeah, no, thank you so much uh, for that, Jorge. I really appreciate you sharing that. And absolutely, I mean, that was me. That was a lot of my own story. I, you know, I took my first Asian American Studies class after I transferred from a community college to UC Santa Barbara. In fact, my first quarter at Santa Barbara, Chicano students were uh, went on hunger strike, demanding that the university expand uh, its commitment to Chicano studies. and. I mean, I remember entering that space in um, the early 1990s, taking this course, uh, courses across all of the ethnic studies, Chicano studies, ethnic uh, Black studies and Asian American studies. And they were deeply transformative in, in so many of the ways that you share and, you know, really set me on the path. It's so hard for me actually to disentangle, like, where is the beginning of my activism and where is the beginning of my pathway towards professorship um, and becoming like a researcher and, and writer and educator. I can't disentangle them because they're so interconnected. And I think that the story you tell is a, 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 a story that rings true for so many people, you know, and certainly it's true for my students. It's not, you can't really take an ethnic studies course and like unsee what you see or unlearn the things you learn. I mean, it really does do something uh, for a person to first off, just even see themselves for the very first time, right? As historical figures and actors, because uh, public education continues to exclude our experiences, continues to exclude our experiences all the time. So if you encounter yourself for the very first time as an historical actor, somebody who looks like you, you know, whether it's a Cesar Chavez in your case, in my case, a Larry Itleong or a Veracruz, and not just these individuals who are historical actors, but movements of people who were able to collectively append uh, these structures of power, totally turn them upside down um, and to achieve, um, you know, uh, uh, better wages or just uh, dignity at the workplace. I mean, those are incredibly powerful uh, stories and um, you can't not be moved by them in some way, right? And so I definitely see for our students that they it will, it's always there. Whatever their chosen profession may be, they will always, always have this critical lens that they bring with them. And yeah, I just saw over the weekend, there was a big Filipino book festival in San Francisco. One of my dear, you know, former students uh, who is trying to pursue a degree in um, as a veterinarian. You know, he, he was also either a minor or a double major in Asian American studies. And yeah, you might think, well, you know, veterinary science, how do you bring a race lens into that? But he does, you know, he's asking real questions about how is the profession, you know, uh, not, you know, encouraging um, a range of, you know, uh, people of color to, you know, to, um, to enter into it. You know, there are so many ways in which, 
you know, the the representations in popular culture, but even in the 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 design of uh, these programs and to what extent they're actually recruiting, you know, students of color. I mean, all of that is perpetuating why there's so little diversity, right, in this field. And so he's bringing it, you know, he pushes them on their admissions, pro, you know, policies. He pushes them in terms of whether or not they're providing support for the few students of color who are in these programs. And just a prime example, Right of how people just can't um, that th- it just deeply transforms you and you bring that with you um, and tr- and 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 you're so driven to uh, commit to equity in all uh, ways that you can whatever that may be right I see it also with young people uh, you know my, one of my former students I, I again saw just a couple of weeks ago he was uh, um, he, he's a food truck owner. You know, really seems very simple, but you know, for him, it's like I want to make sure that you know my my that the the profits that we generate and the revenue we generate in in, in this business that I can reinvest that back into my community. You know, and um, he wasn't necessarily a major, but the class that he took with me was that um, transformational. So. I mean, that's why, yeah, it's deeply transformational for everybody. And I think that's why it's so threatening. I mean, as probably all of you know, we're under attack. Um, Ethnic studies or what's being called critical race theory. I mean, there is a a concerted attack uh, uh, by the right wing against um, just studying, right? Um, These ideas, never mind, you know, um, the the fact that we, you know, typically also... uh, you know, invite uh, young people to engage in praxis and uh, applying these ideas in practice. But that's precisely what's dangerous um, is because it it just does prompt us to want to push and push and ask questions as it should. Thank you. That's that that's awesome. Um, I want to switch though uh, to what your exciting next thing is. Why a farm? Like, how did you get to a farm? I I love the idea of farming intellectually, but I'm such a city kid that I could never, like I, again, intellectually, I want bees and chickens, but that's never going to happen. So um, how did you get to a, to owning a farm and wanting to, and making this pretty big move yeah. uh, for the next thing for you? Tell, tell us about the yeah, farm. Yeah, well, you know, I think for a lot, you know, I could just say, I guess in some ways I was sort of like you too, Bruce. I think, I think for the longest time, I don't know that I could have ever imagined myself wanting to be a farmer. Although, you know, there was something in me that always knew. I mean, I'm an environmental justice, you know, uh, I support environmental justice causes, right? Uh, I want to commit myself to reversing, you know, the impacts of climate change, try to do that every single day in my life, right? I try not to you know, flush the toilet all the time, right? <laughs> Recycle. Um, but, you know, um, a couple of things happened. I think the pandemic was interesting, right? I think, I, I don't know. Um, it, you know, I think we all remember how scary those early days were of shelter in place, right? And just that kind of panic. And that was still, you know, during the previous administration, we were, we were scared, you know? And I just remember, I don't know, I think many of us imagined these like, you know, end of days sort of apocalyptic scenarios where everything would just fall apart. People buy bought toilet paper. I bought seeds. And I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to, I sort of decided in those moments with my husband that, you know, we have to commit to 
something with respect to Mother Earth because I think for me and him, I think this is true for lots of other people. Somehow the pandemic wasn't just about, you know, this virus. It was maybe Mother Earth is trying to like tell us something, you know, and that I believe that really did believe that, you know, and so we invested in seeds and really tried to commit ourselves to living differently. And of course, things started to change, right? Things started to open up a little bit. I also, also during that time, lost a son who decided to commit himself to environmental justice and indigenous people's uh, self-determination. And I don't know, you know, um, in my process of grieving and healing, um, I prayed a lot. And I, I, I knew um, that I needed to something, I, I was being called, I felt, to, to do something different in the world. And, um, you know, literally last year around this time, I was doing a lot of praying. You know, there's a belief, right, around November that the spiritual veil is thin, you know, November 1st. I grew up Catholic, um, All Souls Day. And, you know, I just sort of thought, I'm going to commit myself to praying in November because I think I need guidance. I know that something is not right with this world. I had a son who lost his life really um, while he was living, um, you know, committing to advancing justice for, you know, people who are are, are climate defenders, you know, um, how, how, what do I do? And so, um, you know, my prayers were answered with COVID. So my whole family got COVID at uh, late November after, you know, and I was kind of mad. I'm like, yeah, we were so vigilant. We didn't go anywhere. And we still got COVID. But still thought, you know, this is maybe an opportunity, an invitation um, for me by the universe, spirit, ancestors, whatever we may call the creator. But I felt like that was an invitation for further reflection and just deepening faith. And my husband and I, in that moment, you know, we decided we're pulling our kid out of school. We're going to go back to that moment, we, the, what we felt early pandemic, which was to commit to a different life that maybe this is an invitation to really do that thing that we said we wanted to do, which was to commit to a different life. Go back to uh, those seed packets that we saved up that we didn't fully plant and really just do it. And so, you know, we made this decision. It's like New Year's Eve. It was really, really sad. And, you know, but but we were decisive. This is going to change. We're going to change. We're going to, you know, I had already known by then I was going to retire. The question was, what was I going to do post-retirement? Um, we thought, you know, we're, we're, we kind of said it out loud to the world that we're going to, I'm going to retire. Yes. And we're going to buy a farm and we're going to create a beautiful space for our community. So literally the next day I check my bank account and I see a fat sum of money in my account. And I'm like, what? Oh my God. Wells Fargo made a mistake. <laughs> Withdraw it now. Withdraw the money now. Only to find out that it was an insurance claim um, that came <laughs> after, you know, as a consequence of my son's death. And for me, I believe truly that um, that was him, that was God um, saying, yes, do it. And we are here and you can do this. And this is scary and it will be scary, but um, we're here. And this is the right way. And I don't know. And if I told you more of the story, because it was crazy how we got this house, everything truly, as I look at it, I feel like, you know, when I leaned into faith, everything appeared. And it just, it's kind of like that Indiana Jones movie, right? When he has to take that leap of faith to get, do you remember that? You know, that's our generation. And just the steps sort of reveal themselves. Yeah. We just had to like, take a yep. that's sort of how it's felt. It's like we leaned into faith. And the steps just kind of appeared and we 
found ourselves in this this house. Um, and yeah, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I, I YouTube. I, I, I YouTube it. My <laughs> husband is a YouTube vet. You know, we have seven goats. We've got dozens of chickens. He's Hmong. So it's great as a, his parents still have a oh lot my of gosh. land-based knowledge. You know, I, my, my mom doesn't. And neither do I. I grew up in a suburb, you know? I mean, yeah, there was a lot of Filipinos and the elders all around always had you know, yep. vegetables yep. that they passed over the fence. But, you know, apart from weeding, you know, because it was my chore and what I did, you know, during the pandemic, you know, <laughs> partly because we all took on like, you know, a hobby. Um, I didn't commit myself, but, you know, I feel like this is the invitation and the call. Um, there is something terribly wrong about our world, you know, we know it's on fire and it's, um, people are drowning. Uh, they're burning up or they're drowning and, or if not, we're dying from disease and, you know, um, and we've been gifted this wonderful, bountiful, beautiful earth. And, um, and we, you know, we've just abused it. And, you know, I'd always had that framework, but I don't think it ever taken a centrality in my life the way it has now. And, um, you know, and I have, you know, my son's bold example, you know, I don't know. He, he felt so moved. He visited indigenous communities. He felt like, you know, there was an answer there for us. And, you know, I, I think he was called because he serves, he's meant to serve um, as a kind of spiritual warrior somehow, I feel like, you know, he's inspired so many posthumously uh, from just the things that he did in his short life. And he certainly continues to guide me, you know, so that's the story and just leaning into faith. So, you know, I don't really know, but, you know, my garden is bountiful. I've got lots of vegetables growing and, uh, you know, I watched YouTube and read books. <laughs> And people are coming and people want to be part of this. And, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of left sort of the church that I grew up with uh, a long time ago, but I've never, I think, ever let go of my faith. And I'm still trying to find my way um, what that means in terms of church and, and collective spaces to exercise, you know, my beliefs. But I can say that I can testify that the creator is good and has been very good to me. And uh, faith has not, um, you know, faith has, has led me to this and it's a beautiful place. And I'm incredibly, you know, grateful and, and joyful. I love this life. And yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I've been teary multiple times today. Again, not hard to make Bruce cry, but in, in, in the same way, thank you for, uh, Jorge, for you sharing your story and also Robin for, for sharing your story. All right. I think we're, we're coming up to our time. I do want to say, Robin, if you're interested, I would love to have you back on in a year. Oh, heck yeah. To like say, hey, what happened? Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah how, how'd the farming oh, go? Yeah. I mean, I would love to find out uh, yeah. in a year uh, <laughs> how that's going. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to be able to report something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know. I'm, all right. Well, we're going to. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, all right. Thank you all for, for being here again, for tuning into this episode of BRC and Friends. Thank you, Laura and Jorge, for jumping on and co-hosting today. And we are so grateful for uh, Robin to you, for you to be here. As always, everybody go to the places that you uh, get all your podcast stuff on, rate, review, and subscribe. And if you care to, you can go ahead and support us on Patreon as well. Um, and I think that's it for now. Uh, thank you again for being our BRC and friends, and we will see you next time.
Take care. BRC and Friends was hosted and produced by Bruce Reyes Chow. Co-hosts were Jorge Bautista, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, Amy Kim Caramus Parks, and Laura Monaco Heifetz. And the theme music was composed and recorded by Marissa Magdal Laron. Please head over to Patreon and toss us a few bucks and feel free to connect with any of us via the show notes. And lastly, please don't make me beg. Take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Until the next episode, thanks for listening to BRC and Friends.